Greetings, brethren. It is indeed a pleasure and a, a very distinct honor to be able to be here and speak to you today. I want to give a special greeting, a special hello to those of you out there on the webcast, and a, a very, very personal and special greeting to my dear friend. I'm such a bag of mush. <laughs> my dear friend and sister in Christ, Linda Zelankowitz. I can't look at Ed. I know she's watching on the webcast. We love you, Linda. Well, brethren, I have a, a question, some, some questions for you to begin. Is it fair and accurate of me to say that we are living in rapidly changing times? Have we noticed that? We have indeed. And isn't it so that it causes us some discomfort? It's, it's disconcerting to see how fast things are changing, isn't it? Yeah. We have this, uh, this feeling like, like the rug has been jerked out from under you. You ever, you ever experience that? You, know? you lose your equilibrium. You can't seem to catch up fast enough for all the things that are happening in our lives and in this world. And for those of us who are currently alive. Let me see if I can phrase this right. For those of us born primarily the, the overwhelming majority of Americans now, more than way over 90% of all Americans now have been born after World War II. And for those of us who grew up in that age, especially if you're getting long in the tooth like I am, and some of you are, we remember a different world, do we not? We remember a different morality. And, and you know, there were, there were social inequities and, and problems, and, and not all Americans got the, the full benefit of what uh, the Constitution and the Bill of Rights guarantees for them, you know, and some of those problems ended up finally being corrected. And it was not a perfect society. And like I said, some of our citizens, well, they were second class. They certainly felt that way, and we can understand why. And we remember the sins and faults of our parents and grandfathers and grandmothers, and that's mixed with our affection and, and sweet memories of them, I'm sure. But I think I would get an amen, a collective amen from this audience, that they were almost infinitely more moral people than we are today. There has been a decline in, in the morals of this country. Will someone say amen to that? Amen. Yes. And you know, in those days, in the days of my childhood, more than 90, these are facts, these are st statistics, more than 90% of all Americans of all stripes and denominations and colors and creeds and races believed in a personal God, a literal personal God. And church attendance was the norm. We were a church-centric, family-centric nation in those days, of course. Now, like I said, we weren't perfect. The, the definition of a Christian is sinners saved by the grace of God. They were that, as we are. But there's a culture now that's very much different. And it's, isn't it true that, well, I describe it as a is a rude and, and raw and, and vulgar culture that exists now in America that wasn't there in our sweet childhood. Isn't that the way it was? Yeah. And so we see that there's a, a decline in the moral fiber. Yeah. And we're troubled by what we see on the news and read in the newspapers, and we, we see a lot of things, you know, in some respects, certain crimes have actually gone down by statistic. But on the other hand, other crimes are so heinous that it's just words fail to describe how, how terrible they are. And we see an increase in things that the Bible refers to in very strong language as being abominable. And we see that the truth is dying in the streets. Remember that scripture? The truth has died in the streets. It's fallen in the streets. And we hear all the time now about false news, don't we? 
false news stories, or, or no, fake news stories. I think that's the way it's phrased. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, the Bible is a news book, past, present, and future. But it's not fake news, it's real news, you know. And it has a lot to say about what's going on in our country right now and what that pretends for the future, where it's leading, and what we need to do in light of that. And, you know, over the years, I think we all understand, we, I, I think we all get it, that there is a resistance, a natural resistance over time, especially in our young people, and it's one of the primary reasons why the Church of God has not retained as many of our young people as we would like. It's because of the perceived negativity of prophetic preaching. Amen? You know what I'm talking about, don't you? I mean, no one likes to hear gloom and doom, but the fact is, and I don't mean to be flippant with this remark, but the words gloom and doom are coined by the prophets of God. You will actually find phrases like that in the prophetic scenario, the end-time eschatology of what's coming on this planet. The Bible has more than 30 specific prophecies 30 specific references to the day of the Lord. In fact, the scripture concludes with that scenario, of course, in the book of Revelation. That's what Matthew 24's Sermon on the Mount is about, in fact. That's what Daniel preached about. Hosea, Zephaniah, Zechariah, Amos, all of them, Daniel. It's about the prophecies that God has given to us so that we can know what to expect and look for and how to react when we see certain benchmarks begin to happen. It's very, very important for us. But we see things now in our culture and in our society that, that we just don't identify with anymore. You know, the, the God-centric way that this nation used to be, all of its flaws notwithstanding, its, its theological perspectives incorrect notwithstanding, nevertheless, we've lost something. We've lost something that, do you share with me the sentiment that we know we're not going to get it back in our lifetime? It's, it's gone, and it's not coming back. And it seems like over the last few years, there's been a, almost like a struggle, a contest between morality and secular humanism. Would you agree with me that secular humanism has won? and what that portends for our future. Turn with me in your Bibles, if you would, brethren, over to 2 Timothy. Now, my sermon today, the nature of my sermon is going to be construed as being one about prophecy. But I assure you that it is about good news. The word gospel means good news. But the word good has no meaning if you don't understand bad. It's like light doesn't mean anything if you haven't been in the dark. The whole gospel story of the good news loses its significance if you don't understand all of the trouble in getting there and that, that God is obliged to allow things to play out because mankind refuses to do it his way. Here in 2 Timothy... And I'm already getting dry, and some of you know about uh, my struggle here with uh, pollen in the last few months, so allow me to take a drink. <clears throat> in uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3, it says, know this, or be aware of this, that in the last days... Perilous times shall come. So it is a message for the end time. And, and God's word is replete with phrases like that. The latter days and the end time and so forth. And this is one of those. Paul making this prophetic statement uh, to his protege, Timothy, here in second, the book of 2 Timothy. And this is of great importance for us in, in understanding what is implied here. The word perilous obviously connotates danger. But the Greek word means so much more. The word is kalipos. Kalipos in the Greek. And uh, 
we've heard poignant phrases from orators in the past saying uh, things like, for instance, uh, uh, these are the times that try men's souls. You've heard phrases like that? Well, that concept is related to the word kalipos because it, it, it includes the concept of stress and uh, exasperation. It, it includes the concept of worry because of what's happening. It doesn't just mean danger. It can be specifically danger, or it can mean to simply be worn down and worn away by what you're experiencing. Does that resonate with you Christians? <laughs> you ever feel worn down like you're getting worn out trying to s- survive and, and be converted in this world that is so against our way of life? Yes. And Paul is warning us here that in the last days there will be trying times, times that will try our souls, dangerous times, dangerous to us morally, and certainly dangerous to our nation and to its survival. This word implies stress, anxiety, anticipation, because we have this sense of some kind of foreboding. Do we not? Is there not a sense among us of foreboding because of something we know? There's an urgency. There's an urgency in my preaching. And I know Bill feels it as well. And other elders of God's church feel it as well. We sense that things are not right. And we know something about our God. We know that our righteous and holy God is also our judge. And we know that God will not forever long endure what he sees happening, the degradation to the race he has created in his image. The self-debasement that human beings are involved in. What that must do to God's own, make God's stomach turn. And he will not forever endure it. When God sees some of the things that are happening, the, the paradigms, the ways that we now think, and when I say we, I don't include us as, as, as Christians in that number, naturally. Hopefully. But the thought processes are fractured in people today. We have become a nation of reprobates. As I've pointed out so many times, because it is so profound and it grabs us when we hear it. You know, David said, only the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. And there's some italicized words there. The actual manuscript says, the fool says no, God. The fool says no to God. Our nation has long now, since right after the end of World War II, really with 1947, the Supreme Court began to make drastic changes in decisions that they had historically made other ways. And we've been saying no to God. We want him out of school. We want him out of academia completely. We don't want him in government. We don't want God. In fact, we now are growing the numbers of atheism worldwide in this country are astounding. There are nations now in the block of nations who are predominantly atheistic, formerly nations that we think of as Christian nations. And great changes are happening on planet Earth. It seems to me that the God of this world is having a great deal of success. And it's generational, an accumulation of things that have now spiraled into a, 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 very, a very quickly deteriorating situation, leading up to the end times. It's speeding up. We sense it. We feel it. Paul says here, know that in the last days these these kinds of things will happen. This this danger to our own morality and and our own testing will come. For men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying the power thereof. From such, turn away. Now, Paul is not telling us to be isolated away from other people and turn away from other human beings. That's not the message. The message is don't allow these these moral inequities, don't allow these character traits to infect us. 
because they seek to infect us. That's our struggle. This is the reality of the world that we live in. It's always been this way, but by implication of him mentioning the, the latter days, we must understand that he's talking about it ramping up and getting worse. And indeed it is. We in the church of God, when I say church of God at large, irrespective of corporate name, irrespective of the uh, nomenclature that you have on a piece of paper, whether it's the Church of God International or the United Church or the Living Church or any number of almost, <laughs> it's become almost an infinite number. Some of you will smile when you hear that. But The elders of God's church are in agreement about a message that must be preached. Some have a gift for preaching congregational messages, and we certainly need them. Well, we, we need messages about Christian living and about husbands and wives getting along with each other and how to raise your kids, you know. And we need sermons about doctrine. We need those things, you know. Christ told Peter and the others to feed the flock, feed my sheep, yes, and we must. But we're also told by the Lord Jesus Christ to go into all the world and preach the gospel unto all nations, the good news, and witness to them. A witness. I'll tell you something about the word witness. It is marturion in the Greek, and it literally implies warning. The witness is for a warning so that God cannot be found guilty ever by anybody for saying, you didn't tell me. The word implies warning. That is a, a, a very fundamental priority of the preaching of God's church, especially for those who understand that we have a message particular to God's church, particular to the scripture, that unfortunately is not out there in traditional Christian circles. A lot of wonderful, fine Christian people, and I have no problem getting the quotes around that word and calling them Christian people. I think we would all agree that we know people, Baptists and Catholics and Presbyterians and others, that the, the, the fruit of conversion appears in their lives, and they lead godly moral lives. Somebody say amen. Yeah. But we've been called to the Sabbath and to the Sabbath fellowship and to the fellowship of the holy days and to the fellowship of the knowledge that God has provided for us. It is unique. We are a chosen generation. We know things that others don't know, and we know it better than any previous generation of human beings that have ever lived on this planet. And it's imperative now, and the sense of urgency is, you can't contain it. It's got to be preached. And we've got to let people know who we are, because in knowing who we are, it opens up so many vistas of understanding about what God is doing, what our potential is. Our Israelite origins are critical to understanding it. It was critical to our own calling. And it's rejected. People don't want to hear it. It's not a message they want to hear. People want to hear a warm, fuzzy message. I understand that. You know, we all understand human nature. And you know, all of the stained glass churches are losing members quickly, very, very quickly. It's dwindling. But the feel-good churches, where you go and have a feel-good experience, well, they're growing, yes. And it's about entertainment. People want to be entertained. You know. But the truth will make you free. Not entertainment. It's the truth that will set you free and introduce you to the Lord Jesus Christ in ways that only God the Father can provide for you as he illuminates the face of Jesus Christ out of the confusion in this world that Satan the devil, the god of this world, small g, has perpetrated on humanity. And here in America, we don't, we don't know who we are anymore as a people. And I'm just talking about our morality. But certainly we don't know. It's not even taught in school anymore. Some of the members of God's church are teachers that I've corresponded with and talked with at, at various times, and, and they assure me it's not being taught by them or anybody else at, at their school. History, American history, it's not being taught. And if it is, it's not the same history that you and I learned. It has a 
twist to it. It's different. Revisionist history. And certainly, we've lost track in this country of something that at one point was known by vast numbers of people in this country and preached by preachers across the denominational spectrum. There are sermons that exist from Baptists and Presbyterians and others that talk about us as Israel. Did you know that? Yes. And of course, God's word reveals that we are not just a tribe of Israel, but that we have the name that we are Ephraim and Manasseh. And I'm going to turn to some of those scriptures briefly uh, just to validate that. I think it's important to validate what one says from the podium. But the fact is the word Manasseh actually means forgetfulness. We've forgotten who we are. How ironic it is, yes. Turn with me in your Bibles, if you would, brethren, over to briefly to Genesis chapter 22. And, I, and this, is, this is very important, and, it, and it's been on my mind, it's been on my, on my heart. <laughs> Sounds like the thing a preacher would say. It's been on my heart, brother. Yeah. That I'm troubled by the fact that some of my brethren, even in the ministry, people that admire and love and respect and want to retain their fellowship and their friendship and seek to have accommodation with them and a meeting of the minds with them. But there are those who think that preaching about America and Britain and prophecy ought to be just relegated to a shelf. Put it on a shelf and leave it alone because, well, it's offensive to some people. Well, if it's offensive, it's because it's not being preached correctly, and I don't believe it was preached correctly in years gone by. I can't imagine, well, I can imagine a little bit, but being a white man, I, you know, I haven't lived in a black man's skin. But what it must have been like in years gone by, decades gone by, when you heard a very, or, or a message that was perceived as being racist about America and Britain and prophecy. And that it was an Anglo-Saxon thing. You could belong to this anglo Well, you know, Anglo-Saxon is a misnomer historically because Anglo-Saxon is a, is a concoction of other peoples and tribes and languages. But the fact is, Israel never was and still is not a race. It is a concept. It, it is an invitation. It's a, it's a word that conveys great meaning. It was never a racial thing. And I'll just remind you, Israel was conceived and came into existence by virtue of an interracial relationship. And when the children of Israel left Egypt, they didn't leave from Scandinavia. They were in Africa, and a whole bunch of Africans left with them. The Bible clearly says there were others, a large number of others. And we can look at the racial chromosomal background of the Lord Jesus Christ himself and see that they weren't all so-called lily white. It never was about race. And it should have been preached in such a way to, for people to understand that Israel is a concept that originated with God and was communicated to a man named Jacob because Jacob would not let go of God. And the message is clear. Anybody of any ethnicity or race or background who would come into Israel, and Israel did allow that kind of immigration, anybody who would come in and do what Jacob did, who would embrace the God of Israel and not let go of him, by God's definition, you're now an Israelite. And we could have avoided some hurt feelings had we understood that. But we didn't understand it. Have we grown in grace and knowledge? I know I have. Does that sound vain, egotistical? If it does, I can't help it. We have grown doctrinally. We've grown in grace and knowledge over the last few decades. And hardships and difficulties tend to have that effect upon us. And we can look back now and see our mistakes, and we've learned from them. And our faithfulness 
to the preaching that I'm talking about now is being rewarded by God because he rewards faithfulness. And so, brethren, it's very important that we understand this. In Genesis chapter 22, and I'm a, I will get to it, but I keep having these thoughts that I need to include. <laughs> there are those who, who justifiably, I, I can understand why they would think this. How could we be the birthright people when we enslaved another race? How could we be the birthright people when we exterminated entire Indian tribes? A few million of them, as a matter of fact. And how could Britain before us be part of the birthright people by virtue of the the slaughter that they committed in India and other places? And the things, the, the terrible, egregious sins that that the United States and Great Britain before us perpetrated on other peoples. And we did. It would be remiss of me, though, of course, to say that because of the, of the Judeo-Christian culture that those nations, Britain and America, had as the center of their lives, nevertheless, Eventually, the Judeo-Christian Bible provided a, a stricken conscience for us. And we, of all the people that have ever existed on planet Earth throughout its long history, in the billions who have lived, and every ethnicity at one point or another enslaving some other ethnicity and exterminating large numbers of them, but it was, it was us, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who finally, through conscience driven by the word of God, put an end to that. And hundreds of thousands of white Caucasian boys died to put an end to the evil slavery. And the British Navy before us, at a great cost of blood and money, went out on the high seas and fought the slavers and brought it to a close. So when we give an indictment for our past sins, let's tell the whole story. Yes. But the fact is, our righteousness or lack thereof is not even in the equation of why God has blessed us. God is pragmatic. First of all, he's pragmatic. God fully intended for a nation and a company of nations to exist in the end time and the Inclusive of the end time would be hundreds of years from God's perspective. He doesn't count time the way we do. But a company of nations and a mighty nation who would take the Bible to the rest of the world and would take the knowledge of Jesus Christ to the rest of the world. And there's only been one people that did that. And there's only been one nation with the wealth to do it. And now there is only one that's doing it. For all of our sins and faults, It is still the United States of America that almost 100% worldwide of everything done in the name of Jesus Christ across the denominational spectrum, all religious publications and preaching, it is American money doing it. And we're hardwired in some way that we can't begin to understand. We are the people known by his name. And God is pragmatic. Our sins notwithstanding... He raised us up to be a light to the Gentiles. That was always God's perspective about Israel. It was in the founding premise of God when he brought Israel into existence. And the God who does not change and is the same yesterday, today, and forever still has that that expectation about Israel. Israel was brought into existence to teach the rest of the world what to eat and how to worship and when to worship and how to clean your own body, and and what to do with your own waste, and how to treat each other, and who God is, and who we are. And Israel is the only people God has communicated those things to. Oh, that sounds xenophobic, doesn't it? Well, if you're going to accuse me of that, believe me, I'm echoing God's word when I say that. Here in Genesis chapter 22, we know the story. I'll try to be brief. God called a man named Abraham out of a, out of a pagan culture. They were, they were moon worshipers. They had, a, they had a moon god. 
He came from a land, an area where they worshipped the moon. It was one of the primary deities. In all likelihood, Abraham's father, when they left and migrated, according to God's instruction, you remember the story? An idol was found among his possessions, among Tira's possessions. And in all likelihood, it was an idol dedicated to the moon god. And I'll tell you what, Muslims state that as a fact because they claim Mohammed or uh, Abraham, of course, was the first Muslim. But it is indeed, it is indeed that a man was called out of a pagan culture and society, and he came out of it. He answered the call, and he became the father of the faithful. And he went through a great deal of struggles and, and testing, and ultimately, God provided him and his wife in their old age with the son of their body, Isaiah, or uh, Isaac, rather. And he loved Isaac. And, was, and when Isaac was about 13 or 14 years old, we can do the math and come to that conclusion, God said, take Isaac up on a mount that I will show you. We know it was the Temple Mount, what's now called the Temple Mount, where there was two Israeli soldiers murdered yesterday, by the way. And he said, I want you to take him up there and sacrifice him to me. As a father, can, can, you, can you imagine hearing something like that from God? And you know that he's God. And you know that he's not to be trifled with. And you know that this is God talking to you. <laughs> take that boy up there and sacrifice him. But he also had the promises God had already given. And he had already learned something about God. God keeps his word. And so he was able to draw on that faith and lean on that faith. God has said that the world will be blessed through my seed. Therefore, I don't know how he's going to do it, but I'm going to obey. That really resonated with God. And so up there on the mountain, as Abraham was about to cut Isaac's throat, to bleed him in the traditional way that a sacrifice would be made upon a, a, an altar, to burn him, to have a holocaust, a holy offering, just as it was happening, God said, stop. <laughs> he stopped the motion of his hand. You know. And here, and I'll pick the story up here at verse 12. Lay not thy hand upon the lad, neither do thou anything unto him. For now I know, now I have seen, that thou fearest God, seeing thou hast not withheld thy son, thine only from me, thine only son, the son that you love the son of your body, because we know that Ishmael was born first. You have to understand in the context, read between the lines what God is actually stating here, the only legitimate son, the son of promise, verse 13. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And so God provides the sacrifice. And of course, that's what God does. Ultimately, he provided the sacrifice personally, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Abraham went and he took the ram and he offered him up for a burnt offering instead of his son. And Abraham called the name of that place Jehovah-Jireh, as it is said unto this day, in the mount of the eternal it shall be seen. And the angel of the Lord, and that needs to be explained, the messenger of the Lord. In both testaments the word angel is messenger. And it applies very frequently when you see it, it, it applies directly to the primary messenger of God, who is the Lord Jesus Christ. It isn't for naught that we know that he's God the Word. He's the speaker. He's the logos. He's the communicator. He's the, he's the revealer, not the concealer. And he's the one being addressed here. And subsequent scripture makes that perfectly clear. God is the one speaking here. The, the messenger of the eternal called unto Abraham out of heaven the second time. And he said... By myself. There, there's no greater words in Scripture from cover to cover. This is God the Word, the one who became the Lord Jesus Christ, referencing himself, putting his own life, his own integrity, his own being in this equation. Putting his own, his own truthfulness, his own morality comes into play now. From this point forward, it's not about anybody else, it's about God. I will do this, God says. By myself I have sworn, saith the Eternal, for because you have done this thing and have not withheld thy son, thine only son, 
that in blessing I will bless thee, and in multiplying I will multiply thy seed as the stars of the heaven, and as the sand which is upon the seashore, and thy seed shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because thou hast obeyed my voice. That is just so ignored in traditional Christian circles, unfortunately. And it holds a key for us, a key of understanding. God has obligated himself by his own integrity here to do these things. And from this point forward, naturally God would be hopeful that we would be righteous and live up to his expectations. But he is God after all. He's omniscient. He knows all things and he knows human nature. And he knows we won't cut the mustard. (laughs) But he's not going to let that hold him back because he's pragmatic. He has a reason for this. And so now he has sworn by himself. And I could insert the words here and I I wouldn't be doing any harm to God's word. Even though you're not going to live up to your end of the deal, I'm going to live up to mine. Because I have sworn by myself, I will do this. Can we get that? Can we absorb that and believe it? Yes. And that means that somewhere on this planet, and I'll just reference the fact that we can prove, that maybe that would be a time for a Bible study or another sermon, we can prove that the blessings, the birthright blessings, were to come true and be experienced and that God would fulfill all of his promises to the birthright people prior to the establishment of the kingdom of God. They have nothing to do with the kingdom. And so somewhere on this planet, currently, throughout history, either God has did what he said he was going to do, either God has kept his word, And the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob have indeed fulfilled this promise, or God has fulfilled it to them, or he didn't. Now, which is it? The Bible tells us God cannot lie. And so somewhere on this planet, I submit to you, brethren, there has to be a people, there has to be a powerful singular nation and a company of nations that we can look at historically and see that God has kept his word. If you can't, then you might as well put the Bible on the shelf because it's not true. If any part of it falls, the whole thing falls. God said, I'm going to do this because he knew that would be the light to the rest of the world. He knew what he was doing. He foresaw it all. We are Israel. We, and primarily the community of nations who speak English and whose culture has historically derived from the Judeo-Christian word of God, are modern-day Ephraim and Manasseh. We are Jacob. We are the end-time Israel of prophecy. We are. And I feel sorry for those who cannot see that. And I invite my brothers and sisters who still have doubts about that, go back and study God's word. For it is there for correction in doctrine and reproof. Don't let your bias against things that happened in years gone by cloud your judgment. Don't allow things that may not have been preached as well as they could to now cloud your judgment and prevent you from seeing what is so apparent. Don't allow, don't allow the fact that, does anybody, did anybody ever feel like a second-class citizen in church in years gone by? I see a bunch of people shaking their heads. That shouldn't have been. Don't don't allow real or or perceived things that that may or may not have happened cloud your judgment about this. And certainly don't be looking at it through through the prism of your race. If you do, you will never see it. Look at it as God's integrity. Look at it for the obvious result of it. Look at it for the reality of this country and how unique we are and how unique the Britons have been before us. Our sins notwithstanding, our current wretched condition notwithstanding, but it is American and British boys and girls that have died for other people. That's, that's, that's unique. That's, that's a Christ thing. That, that's a sacrificial thing. It, we're hardwired as the, as the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to respond to God in ways that others have not. 
God has dealt with one people. I'm not prepared to call God a racist or xenophobic, you know, but I will say this. He is absolutely prejudicial in his dealings with Israel. The word prejudice doesn't necessarily have anything to do with race. Let me tell you something. I am prejudiced in favor of the people that I'm preaching to right now, as opposed to a Baptist congregation. Nothing wrong. Those are fine people. But guess what? I'm part of you. We're part of each other. I'm prejudiced in favor of my wife and half the people here who are here today are my family. (laughs) And I'm prejudiced in favor of my old friend Ed here. And I'm prejudiced in favor of God's word. I'm prejudiced in favor of the, of the truth. You know, prejudice is part of our human nature. It depends on how you're using it, what, and prejudice in what regard. God is prejudiced in favor of a people that he raised up. Not a race, but a people, a family to which all could integrate and belong. It's special to God. He, called, he, he makes love in the scripture, he makes love with his words to Israel. He doesn't do that with anybody else. Turn with me in your Bibles over to Paul's words in Romans. And the reason I want to go there is because I remember a conversation by phone, by email with others who have said, well, you're wrong because God cast Israel away. He divorced Israel. He's done with Israel. That's over. And they're lost to history, and they're not in the equation in any kind of way anymore, and that's why we shouldn't preach about it. Now, turn with me briefly over to the book of uh, Romans, chapter 11. And I don't have time to expound every word of what Paul said here. Allow me to take a drink. I know, bear with me and be patient. The Apostle Paul, chapter 11. I say then, hath God cast away his people? God forbid. For I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. God hath not cast his people away, which he foreknew. He has not. That's a very powerful declarative statement. There's no ambiguity there. God has not cast us away, and we have a number of scriptures that reveal the fact that God is going to clean Israel up and remarry her and fulfill all of his expectations for Israel. And when he returns, he's not going to land in Denver. He's going to land in Jerusalem. Israel. Yes. Turn with me down to... um, Verse 25. Verse 25 of chapter 11 of Romans. For I would not, brethren, that you uh, should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own conceits, that blindness in part is happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles become in. See, God is working out a plan here until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. There are certain things that must run their course, and God is obliged to allow it to happen because the lessons won't be learned otherwise. Verse 26, And so all Israel shall be saved, as it is written, There shall come out of Zion the deliverer and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant unto them when I shall take away their sins." God intends to be gracious to Israel and forgive them and clean them up and fulfill his paradigm for their existence. Yes. And if you would turn with me briefly over to Hebrews chapter 8. In Hebrews chapter 8. And I'll just reference you students of the Bible We can turn to the book of Ezekiel in different places, and we're told about God rejoining two sticks that represent the whole house of Israel, Judah, Israel, and so forth. There's a number of prophecies that talk about that and about God's fulfilled expectation in regarding Israel. But I wanted to break into the the text here of 
Hebrews chapter 8 because it is said previously in Jeremiah, and I will probably end up there, but uh, in chapter 8, let me break into the text at verse verse 8, talking about the covenant that Israel broke. For finding fault with him, he saith, Behold, the days come, saith the Eternal, when I will, notice, I will, I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of, excuse me, Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they continued not in my covenant, and I regarded them not, saith the Eternal. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days. After what days? After the day of the Lord, and after all the prophecy is fulfilled. Let me just pause long enough to say, remember in Matthew five seventeen, Christ said, don't think that I came to destroy the Torah or the prophets, and that not a jot or a tittle of the law in any wise shall be diminished or taken away until all is fulfilled. All of God's paradigms, all of God's visions, all of God's dreams, all that God had in mind when he said in Genesis 1.26, let us make man in our image, all of that is still percolating in God's mind, and he's not been dissuaded, and he will achieve that goal. And all will indeed be fulfilled. I will put my laws into their mind and write them in their hearts, and I will be to them a God, and they shall be to me a people. That's happening for us now, brethren. That's what conversion is all about. God is now presently writing his personality into us, his laws. It's the mind of Christ. It's happening for us now by virtue of the fact that we have the indwelling of God's Spirit, and we are endeavoring to be converted. We're participating, and it's happening for us now. But this is a prophecy about what's going to happen eventually, and that God will be gracious to Israel and to the rest of the world as well. Now, if you would, brethren, turn with me over to Isaiah chapter 42. And I'm trying to go fast. I don't know how much time I have. Am I getting short back there? Fifteen minutes. Well, I'm in trouble. All right, Isaiah chapter 42. Behold my servant whom I uphold, mine elect, and whom my soul delighteth. I've put my spirit upon him, and he shall bring forth judgment to the Gentiles. Obviously, he's talking about his his servant, the Lord Jesus Christ, and in this case, the uh, author here. But he's talking in a broader context about the whole nation of Israel because they were raised up to be priests and kings to the rest of the world, to be a light to the Gentiles. He shall not cry, nor lift up, nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. A bruised reed shall he not break, and the smoking flax shall not he, he quench. He shall bring forth judgment unto truth. He shall not fail nor be discouraged till he have set judgment in the earth, and the isles shall wait for his law. There's a lesson there for us. Do not give up. Do not be discouraged. Keep going. Occupy till I come, Christ said. Thus saith God the Lord, he that created the heavens and stretched them out, He that spreads forth the earth and that which comes out of it, he that gives breath unto the people upon it and the spirit to them that walk therein, I, the eternal, have called thee in righteousness and will hold thine hand and will keep thee and give thee for a covenant of the people, for a light of the Gentiles. There's a proof text of what I've been saying, their reason for existence, to open the blind eyes, to bring out of the prisons from the prison and them that sit in darkness out of the prison house. That were the first words Jesus Christ preached when he began his ministry, when he stood up in the temple on the last day and read from Isaiah. I am the eternal. That is my name and my glory I will not give to another, neither my praise to graven images. Behold, the former things are come to pass, and new things do I declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. I tell you of them. That's prophecy. Before it happens, I'm going to tell you. I'm going to prophesy. I'm going to give you a picture of what I'm going to do. Now turn with me over to cross the page to uh, chapter 43. Know this, but now this saith the Eternal, that created thee, O Jacob, and formed thee, O Israel. Fear not, for I have redeemed thee. I have called thee by thy name. Thou art mine. Very peculiar language there, if God is not prejudicial in favor of Israel. Clearly he is. When thou passest through the waters, I will be with thee. And through the rivers they shall not overflow thee. 
When thou walkest through the fire, thou shalt not be burned, neither shall the flame kindle upon thee, for I am the Lord thy God, the Holy One of Israel, thy Savior. I gave Egypt for thy ransom, Ethiopia and Saba for thee. Since thou wast precious in my sight, thou hast been honorable, and I've loved thee. Therefore will I give men for thee and people for thy life. Fear not, for I am with thee. I will bring thy seed from the east and gather thee from the west. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, keep not back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth, even everyone that is called by my name, for I have created him for my glory. I have formed him, yea, I have made him. God made Israel for his glory. Look at verse 10. You are my witnesses, saith the Eternal, my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me there was no God formed, neither shall there be after me. And I I feel compelled to pause there to explain something. No God formed is not a proof text for those who believe Jesus Christ was created. (laughs) The word is Yatsar. Here the word Yatsar represents the creative concept of the Eloa, of Elohim, actually being conceived and designated as the God of Israel. He is unique. There is none other beside him in that respect. There will not be any other after him in that respect. He is the one and only monogenus of John 3.16, and he is the God of Israel, past, present, and future. He is the Father who will establish the kingdom on behalf of his Father and our Father. He is the pater. He is the beginning, the middle, and the end the Alpha and the Omega. I have declared and saved, and I have showed when there was no strange God among you, therefore you are my witnesses, saying the Eternal, I am God. Yea, before the day was, I am He. And there is none that can deliver out of my hand. I will work, and who shall let it? And let me drop down here just to finish up on this particular scripture. Verse 21. This people have I formed for myself, they shall show forth my praise. And now in Jeremiah chapter 30. Many of us remember some powerful and very excellent sermons given by some of the greatest speakers that have ever endeavored to preach the gospel in years gone by. And the Worldwide Church certainly had some wonderful, powerful, great speakers. And God blessed them. And he blessed the the, the fruit and the word went out and it didn't return void and, and a great thing was accomplished. But I want to clue you in on something here. Jeremiah chapter 30. The word that came to Jeremiah from the eternal saying, Thus speaketh the Lord God of Israel, saying, Write thee all the words which I have spoken unto thee in a book. For lo, the days come, saith the eternal, that I will bring again the captivity of my people Israel and Judah, saith the eternal, and I will cause them to return to the land that I gave to their fathers, and they shall possess it. And these are the words that the eternal spake concerning Israel and concerning Judah. And he goes on. And we have numerous scriptures that that lead us that way about Judah and Israel. But I want to go to verse 7 now. Alas, for that day is great, so that none is like it. It is unique. There's never going to be another day like it, and never has been a day like it. Historically, we've understood that there can only be one worst time, no one greatest time, even the time of Jacob's trouble. Jacob has been in trouble many times, but this is very specific here. That day is so great that none is like it, the time of Jacob's trouble. Now, I'm not going to stand here at the podium today and be dogmatic and and say we have entered the time of Jacob's trouble, the prophesied time of Jacob's trouble. But I always get a kick out of doing this. You tell me, is Jacob in trouble? Yes, indeed, he is, of course. And if we haven't specifically entered into that time, I think I wouldn't find disagreement in this audience that we've at least got a foot in the door. Yes. I think the door is wide open, personally. Alas, for that day is great, so that none is like it. It is even the time of Jacob's trouble. But, and see, this is what was left out in many respects in years gone by. But this is what I want to finish on. But he shall be saved out of it. 
Jacob shall be saved because God has not cast away Israel. All of his, all of his hopes and dreams about Israel are still there. Israel had to go through a cauldron of experience because of what they did to learn certain lessons, which are still being learned. But God still fully intends to implement his paradigm for Israel. Verse 10, Therefore fear not, O my servant Jacob, saith the Eternal, neither be dismayed, O Israel, for lo, I will save thee from afar and thy seed from the land of their captivity. And Jacob shall return, and shall be in rest, and be quiet, and none shall make him afraid, irrespective of whatever happens. And we have a scenario that suggests that some very dark and dire times are ahead for Jacob in the immediate future. But this is good news. This is the contrast. A lot of ugly stuff, but it ends in light. I am with thee, saith the Eternal, to save thee. Though I make a full end of all nations, whither I have scattered thee, yet will I not make a full end of thee, but I will correct thee in measure and will not leave thee altogether unpunished. Yes, sometimes it takes a spanking to get the message through, doesn't it? Yes. Now, if you would, brethren, turn with me again over to the book of Jeremiah, chapter 31. And just look at verse 1 before I move on here. At the same time, saith the Eternal... Oh, 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 wait a minute. I see a scripture that I overlooked. Verse 22. You shall be my people, and I will be your God. Behold, the whirlwind of the Eternal goes forth with fury, a continuing whirlwind. It shall fall with pain upon the head of the wicked. The fierce anger of the Eternal shall not return until he have done it, and until he have performed the intents of his heart... In the latter days, you shall consider it. Brethren, we are considering it in this sermon. At the same time, saith the Eternal, I will be the God of all the families of Israel, and they shall be my people. And now, turn with me over to Isaiah 31, 31. Behold, the days come, saith the Eternal, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I bought, took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they break, although I was an husband unto them, saith the Eternal. But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith the Eternal, I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts, and they will, they, there they will be my God, and shall be my people. It won't just be on a tablet of stone. It will be written into the DNA of the human race. It will be in the hearts and minds of the human race. I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people, and they shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord. Do you know the Lord, brother? (laughs) For they shall all know me. From the least of them unto the greatest of them, saith the Eternal, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. And now finally, brethren, if I haven't proven it, turn with me to Amos chapter 3. Amos chapter 3. Hear this word that the Eternal has spoken unto you, O children of Israel, against the whole family which I brought up from the land of Egypt, saying... You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. Can two walk together except they be agreed? Well, brethren, we have read scripture that clearly tell us that eventually we will indeed walk together. God will not leave us altogether unpunished, but he will indeed redeem us and save us. His plan for Israel is still in place. And it's still on track. And now in conclusion, turn with me to chapter 2 of the book of Isaiah. The word that Isaiah the son of Amos saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. It shall come to pass in the last days that the mountain of the eternal's house shall be established in the top of the mountains. Mountains used as a metaphor here for government. And shall be exalted above the hills And all nations shall flow unto it. 
And many people shall go and say, Come ye, let us go up to the mountain of the eternal, to the house of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us of his ways, and we will walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And there will be Hindu people saying, Kali has failed us. And there would be Muslim people saying, Allah has failed us. And Muhammad was wrong. Yes. Let's go up to the house of the eternal and learn of his ways. Yes. And he shall judge among the nations and shall rebuke many people. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation. Neither shall they learn war anymore. O house of Jacob, come ye and let us walk in the light of the Lord. And that's exactly what we've been doing.